From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's first COVID-19-related lung transplant has taken place. We met the recipient Tuesday. Today, the surgeon, who's positively poetic in describing the organs he transplanted. Healthy young lungs are nice and light and fluffy, and they look like beautiful pink sponges, and we get them with air remaining in them after they've been donated. Then, a state lawmaker's unusual first session, in a pandemic and in the minority. Republican Representative Stephanie Luck of Penrose tells us that suburban and rural Coloradans are increasingly isolated. COVID pointed that out for a number of us, that if we're not developing healthy communities, then we are actually missing out on on sections of life, on what it means to thrive. Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day, bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When transplant surgeon Dr. Robert McGee walked into his patient's room, he knew time was of the essence. Without new lungs, 37-year-old Brian Raymond wasn't going to live much longer. That day, March 6th, Raymond got the first COVID-related lung transplant in Colorado. After months of recovery, he returned to his Montana home just in time to celebrate Father's Day with his kids. There was one moment we wanted to hear about from both doctor and patient. That's the minutes right before the operation. Here's how Brian Raymond described it to us yesterday. And then when they came to take you back for surgery, I remember looking at Trinity and saying, I love you. And I thought that was the last time I was going to see her. You didn't have high hopes at that point. I did not, but I knew I had God on my side, and it was either his time to call me home or he has a bigger plan for me. Well, I asked surgeon Dr. Rob McGee from the University of Colorado Hospital what it was like on the other side of the operating room door. Yeah, I was thinking of a lot of coordination, a lot of things about making sure my colleague who's uh, on the procurement side is communicating and I'm hearing the right things about the lungs being appropriate for Brian. The organ procurement. You're correct, yeah. And I'm also thinking about what are the possible complications and the full gamut of the easiest to the hardest scenario. And this is uh, the first COVID recipient that we've done a transplant on in Colorado. It's the first one I've done. And I had talked to friends around the country to find out their experiences, and they ranged from the easy and banal to very challenging. Yeah. So what complicates things about COVID when it comes to a lung transplant? It's an inflammatory disease that results in scarring of the lungs. And we never know how badly not only the lungs are scarred on the inside, but how badly the lungs can be scarred to the inside of the chest wall. And so how difficult it is to safely remove the lungs so we can sew in the new lungs. Oh, so the effect of COVID can make it harder to separate the lungs from the body. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes. It's almost like it creates a 
Scarring bond? Yeah, it scars, it can scar the lungs up to the inside lining of the chest when normally they just smoothly move back and forth when we breathe. Oh. What was the state of Brian's lungs when you got inside? It, doing what I understand is a clamshell maneuver to open his chest. Yes. Once we entered the chest, we were all pleased to see the lungs were not very severely scarred to the ribs. There was some, but not extensive scarring. And so we were able to proceed a lot quicker than we had feared we would. Quicker? It was still an eight-hour procedure, right? Indeed. I think we all want to imagine that surgery is really... Um, graceful and delicate. I want to imagine that because I'm out on a table with my body open, but I imagine it's actually quite physical. It is a combination of the two. There's definitely an art to it, but it can be very physical and very physically demanding, especially in a lung operation such as this. Yeah. What's physically demanding about a lung transplant? You're standing for eight plus hours, completely focused on the situation. Uh, you've got to have a big picture as to what's going on with the patient. You have input from the numerous team members uh, who are on the operation with you. Oh, it's like someone's talking in your ear. Yes. And I know that yeah. feeling. And the, 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 the stakes are a little lower for me, I think. Well. Okay. So there's a lot of information coming at you. And you have to process that and put that into real-time action uh, to get patients safely through the intended operation. And then do you just pull the lungs out? How do, how do the lungs come out? So you have to separate the lungs from the structures that attach them to the heart and to yeah. the chest. And the main structures are the bronchus, the airways from the trachea to the lung itself, the blood vessels that go from the heart to the lung, the pulmonary arteries, and then the blood vessels that drain from the lung back to the heart, the pulmonary veins. So it's a very vascular surgery, isn't it? Is. it? Yes. You have to then, after you've removed the lungs where you divide those blood vessels in a very controlled way, so there's no bleeding, you divide and seal them, then you when you sew the new lungs in, you're re-sewing the patient blood vessels and the patient airway to the donor airway and blood vessels. I suppose this isn't why we call you just a pulmonary surgeon. You're a thoracic surgeon. It's all of that cavity. It is. Yeah. 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 And are lungs heavy? Nice, healthy, young lungs are nice and light and fluffy. And they look like beautiful pink sponges. And we get them uh, with air remaining in them after they've been taken from the donor, after they've been donated, they have air inside them. Then when we sew them back in, they deflate during the sewing process. But once we've sewn the lungs back into the recipient's body, we re-expand them and fill them in there, and it's a beautiful event. Everyone in the room pauses to look at that because it is a new life happening. But there was a moment in which the donor's breath remained in the lungs and then is exhaled, uh, for lack of a better term, in the operating suite? Yes. I haven't thought of it that way. Oh. But indeed, yeah. And often the lungs coming out of the patient who's undergoing the lung transplant are heavy. They don't work. They've got fluid in them. They've got scarring. And you see them and you're just looking forward to putting in new healthy lungs that will uh, carry this patient forward. It's that apparent that the lungs are unhealthy. Indeed. What was it like to meet Brian in the moments before that surgery? I had heard about Brian for weeks before that surgery. He's in the ICU in rooms next to my patients' rooms. And we'd talked about the possibility of listing him for lung transplant. And when I heard that he had been listed, uh, as we all are, we're all excited to have the opportunity to share an improvement in someone's care with them and their family. 
Just uh, to be able to deliver the good news. Right. And I went into the room and met with Brian and met with Trinity and shared, shared with them uh, the uh, good news and that we'd start proceeding and there would be still some potential opportunities for us having to pause. Uh, but thankfully, those didn't happen. Because you're tracking the arrival of the lungs. We're tracking the lungs from when they've been donated to when my colleague has seen them and determined that they're appropriate for transplantation, and then their receival back here in, at the University of Colorado. These were Colorado-based lungs, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. So in your mind, you're running through all the potential obstacles you might encounter. Brian has MS, multiple sclerosis. It was diagnosed almost by accident, um, not because he had any overt symptoms, but did that complicate the surgery? No, it didn't. And he has not let that complicate his recovery either. And might it have made his COVID condition worse, do you think? It may have made him more susceptible to developing a more severe COVID infection. I guess I ask that because there are going to be people who listen to Brian's story who say, well, you know, it's quite a dramatic story, but it's because he had underlying health problems. How, how quickly should we assess his experience as unusual because of MS? When I met him, if I hadn't read that in his chart, I would not have known he had that. Mm -hmm. And in taking care of him subsequently, it's never been an issue. So it's hard for me to ascribe that to the cause of why he developed such a bad response to COVID. Oh. And I think it makes us all think, what makes us susceptible to a bad COVID infection? Over 600,000 Americans have died from COVID infections. And we don't know that all of them have been severely sick or had many comorbidities, as we say. And so it makes you pause to think, how can we prevent this from getting worse? Who could be sick? And why would they be sick when they were seemingly healthy? No, I hear you grappling with the same mysteries in a way that we all are. Do you expect to be doing more COVID-19 related lung transplants? Yes, not only locally, but the national level, we all expect to. There's the idea of the long haulers, people who've had COVID, who've had lengthy consequences from COVID, and those sequelae resulting in potential need for more lung transplantation. Sequelae is a fancy word for side effects. So you do expect to do more yourself at your hands in Colorado. Correct. But it may not be that the need for them manifests immediately. Uh, it could be, what, months after an infection that someone realizes their lungs are kaput. Yes, you're right. Months, potentially years. And we don't know because we don't know the natural history of COVID and its effects on people quite yet. Oh, you might be operating years from now on someone who has COVID currently. Yes, was Brian's surgery a kind of teachable moment? Did you document it in some ways as an associate professor of medicine as well? Well, we document it in our minds because it's a sentinel event in our institution and in the state and in the region. But all of us in medicine reflect back on cases that we think are interesting and, and noteworthy. And this is definitely one of those. But also in this current era where we're faced with the COVID pandemic and raising new issues that most of us in our career had never encountered. These are all memorable and we chalk them up to what can we do better in the future? Hmm. What could you have done better? Well, I think as a society, we could have done a lot better with our management of COVID. I think uh, with Brian's care, he was incredibly fortunate and he has been a true exemplary 
patient for patients going through similar situations. Unfortunately, there's been so many patients who've shared a bad experience with COVID who have not made it to the ability to have a lung transplant or survive. That, that was, to me, the, the central tension around this procedure. He is bad enough health-wise to need new lungs, but you have to be strong enough to get the new lungs. Yes. Yeah. And most of the patients that we've seen with lung failure have not been strong enough to make it to lung transplantation, to, for it to even be an option for survival. How do you decide beyond health status who's right for a transplant? So I'm thinking now to Brian's wife, Trinity, and the incredible support that she lent. Do you look around a patient and say, does this person have the community supports to make this happen? Yes, and it's not only the physiologic medical numbers and metrics that we use to make sure we're doing the appropriate care for a patient, but there is the critical aspects of the support structure and their social environment and their well-being that play into this. Because it's not just the operation, it's not only the lead up to the operation, but it's the recovery, and the recovery is long. The recovery has many road bumps and obstacles that we need to navigate, but if patients fall into those pitfalls, we need to get them through them. And having that support structure outside of the hospital is, is essential to their full recovery. Help me understand what life will look like now for Brian and for anyone else who gets a lung transplant. They're on immunosuppressant drugs, right? Is that true for the rest of their lives? Yes. After a lung transplant, you're on immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. And why is that? Explain that. That's to prevent the body from fighting against the new organs. The new organs weren't born with him. They're not his. And so the body will never fully and, recognize them? And so them? the body will always try to fight them and reject them. Now, they're 20 his. years on, that'll still happen. Yes. And so we keep immunosuppression on for life. And they're his lungs. They're his lungs for the rest of his life. But we need to make sure the body doesn't say they're not his anymore and try to get rid of them. Is it a blood type thing with lungs? I know that's probably it, a really it, basic question. It is. At the root of it, it is. Oh, okay. And then how else is his normal new? Yeah. So he's immunosuppressed by those medications. And so he has to be really cognizant of watching out for exposure to other people who are sick to prevent him from getting a cold. Because a cold for him may manifest, may become much worse than a cold for you and I. He's going to always be thinking about what life could have been if he hadn't survived. And that emotional trauma will be in many patients for the rest of their life or for extended periods of time. Oh, the why me, a kind of survivor's guilt, yeah. do you think? Well, maybe not survivor's guilt, uh -huh. but what could life have been differently? And, and, and I think that's hard to understate for not just organ transplantation, but a lot of the situations we find ourselves treating in medicine, cancers and trauma as well. Some of these are feelings that you encountered, I understand, personally, because you, you had like some lung issues, didn't you? Yeah, I, well before COVID, came down with a very aggressive form of pneumonia while on a family vacation overseas, and it was strictly bad luck. All of my family, my wife and my two kids were exposed to it, and thankfully they didn't get sick. They had lesser side effects from pneumonia that I did, and over the course of 12 hours, it went from me being young and healthy to coughing up blood and gasping for air and needing to have a breathing tube put in and having some temporary organ failure as a result. Um, lung and, failure? Uh, I had lung failure and I had kidney failure. Thankfully, after about two months in the hospital, an extensive support and uh, a life flight from overseas back to 
the own, my own ICU here in Denver, I was able to be supported through it and overcame it. And a few months later, returned back to work and have been able to live out a normal life subsequently. But it definitely changes you as a person for what you went through that you hope to never go through or never wish someone else to go through. Does it change you as a physician? Undeniably, it must. You know, it definitely has helped me be a little more empathetic with patients going through tough times, also to their families for not knowing what the patient's going through or what's going to befall the patient or what could the outcomes be, especially when a patient's critically ill. I think it also makes you look at the person across the table from you differently because you don't know what they've been through. Hmm. The coughing up blood thing is so scary to me. Had had that ever happened to you before? No. 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 I'm so glad you're better. Thank you. Yeah. It's a long time in the hospital, huh? And in your own ICU. In my own ICU. Did you have faith in the people? I did. Or did you think, I need to get up and handle this? (laughs) It was nice to be surrounded by people I know and trust who I take care of their patients and vice versa and to have warm and friendly, familiar faces. And I'll tell you, it's inspiring for me to see my patients taken care of by the same teams of nurses, physicians, uh, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, the list goes on and on. And it's literally the same people who took care of Brian in his lead up to surgery and his recovery from surgery. As I've thought about Brian's experience with all of the health professionals that he relied on, I just get this like NASCAR pit stop image in my head. You know, everyone rushes in, they all know exactly their part in the choreography of this medical arc. You know, do you think that resonates? I think that's a nice way to look at it. How do you manage stress? And can you teach me? (laughs) I think all of us in an environment where there's stress, no doubt all jobs have figured out some way to manage stress and we each have our own different approaches to it. I love spending time with my kids and my family, my wonderful wife and my dog. You know, we live in Colorado for a reason. It's a choice. And uh, it's the IPAs, enough. I understand, for you. There's definitely a draw to the massive selection of IPAs in Colorado, but we must take them in moderation. Oh, that, what, a, what a helpful piece of advice. I, I imagine that bond with your family was only strengthened when you were in that hospital bed yourself, wondering what your future was. It was. It was. My one-year-old son learned to walk while I was asleep, unable to see him. So when I woke up, he was walking. Uh, My uh, daughter, who was then four, uh, was learning to read and drawing. And apparently I was asleep, but she was at the bedside in the ICU drawing pictures of me. I've seen some of the pictures. She drew a picture of me healthy and vigorous and a picture of me in the ICU with lots of tubes and lines. And I can only imagine how traumatic it was for her. But at the same time, it was fortuitous that she was able to see me because in most ICUs, kids don't get to see their family. Hmm. Um, Just to be clear, this was pre-COVID. Yeah, this was totally unrelated to COVID. Just bad luck with pneumonia. Brian shared that he was vaccinated. His wife, Trinity, is as well. Is there any sense that vaccines are as effective in people who have had transplants, lung transplants in particular, versus the general population? I don't think we know that just yet. We all want to hope and expect that vaccination is going to be a a limit to the spread of COVID and ability to get back to good quality of life. We don't have the data that I'm aware of to support how effective it is in patients who are immunosuppressed. Mm. We expect it is effective. Is it as effective in patients who are not immunosuppressed? 
that's what we don't know. Yeah. And You're really inventing the plane. <laughs> You're inventing the plane as you fly it. You're not, a, not just building it, you know? Yeah. As a medical profession, we are. And I, I really think that the vaccination effort um, has been a, an amazing effort in our time in medicine. And I wish that uh, more people would get vaccinated because I want to get back to the quality of life that we all live in Colorado for. And vaccinations are the most easy way to achieve that. Do you say this plainly? If more people get vaccinated, I have to do fewer lung transplants? I hope so. I hope so. Brian shared with us that he used to referee youth sports. Uh, he's a hunter. He had a very physical job before COVID, uh, which was road maintenance. Is all that still possible for him? In short, yes. It's going to be up to his long-term recovery, how he feels, and his energy level. But as of today, I don't see any barriers to those in the future as he recovers. Is he going to have to wear a mask for the rest of his life? Most patients who get lung transplants wear masks in social environments prior to COVID just to prevent exposures to someone with a cold. You know, that was a way of life for them before COVID, you're saying? Yeah. And I expect that'll persist. But if he's outdoors refereeing sports, that's up to him. Probably doesn't need to wear it. Thank you so much for being with us. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for taking an interest in Brian. Dr. Robert McGee, cardiothoracic surgeon and associate professor at the CU School of Medicine. He operated on Brian Raymond March 6th, the first COVID patient to receive a lung transplant in Colorado. After recovering in Aurora, Raymond and his wife Trinity have returned to Malta, Montana, where they live with their four children. You can hear our conversation with the couple at CPR.org. We're so grateful they shared so much with us. Thanks as well to producer Michelle P. Fulcher and audio engineer Pedro Lombrano. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what a rural recovery from COVID might look like. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for June 30th at CPR.org slash turn the page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. A roller coaster 150 days long. It's one way of describing the 2021 state legislative session. Big changes to health care, investments in infrastructure, fights over just how far climate change measures should go. We wondered what the roller coaster ride was like for a freshman coming into the Capitol in a pandemic and in the minority. First year State Representative Stephanie Luck of Penrose represents portions of Fremont, Otero, and Pueblo counties in southern Colorado. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to start by actually going back to before you were elected. You campaigned on Colorado needing a paradigm shift. Quote, 
for too long, our state has acted like a woman competing for mother of the year. It has felt compelled to take on every project and to solve every problem real or imagined. Representative, what are your thoughts about that statement now after your first year in the legislature? Well, I stand by those words and feel as though this last session proves the point. We took on a number of different tasks, a number of different problems, and not to suggest that there aren't real problems that our state needs to deal with. But the question for me is always, who is best positioned to deal with them? Is it the role of government to solve every single problem? And if so, is it the role of state government, federal government, local government, or is there another way forward? Sometimes when you you have a problem, you can create more problems by giving the authority to the wrong person. Give me right? an example of where you think that happened this session. Oh, boy. Um it sounds like it sounds like you don't know where to start. Maybe that is uh, that is the problem. There, there was a bill related to helping people establish better credit scores, and I had a an interesting set of conversations both with colleagues in my caucus and then colleagues in the majority about this bill. And we all agree that there are problems related to building credit, especially when you're younger and you are just starting out. How do you do that? And, you know, for me, there is a lot to be said about developing community. We tend to live increasingly isolated lives. Our architecture encourages it, especially in suburban or rural communities where you drive into your garage and you don't connect with your neighbor next door. That can make us feel very isolated. And I think COVID pointed that out for a number of us, that if we're not developing healthy communities then we are actually missing out on on sections of life, on what it means to thrive. And so when we're talking about building credit scores and having government help to facilitate that, I think we miss opportunities to allow for community to establish, for individuals to establish relationships with each other. And when the government steps in, then we break down the need to actually have those conversations, which can further exasperate these problems of lack of community. What was your game plan for navigating a chamber where Democrats hold a 41-24 majority? Well, I don't tend to think in terms of partisanship. And so my game plan was simply to be as persuasive as possible. Because in essence, what are we doing up there? Right? We're, we're seeking to govern a state. We're seeking to say, We have these people that are in our district or in our state that matter and that we value and that we want to see live whole and healed lives. And we want to make sure that the way that we do government ensures or at least helps to facilitate them living those kinds of lives. And so we look at these problems that are brought to us or that we see and we throw out a solution. And then the question becomes, is that the right solution? So let's talk about these ideas, right? I have a colleague who says ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. So our goal should be to eliminate as many bad ideas as possible. So we minimize the number of victims that are being created and to honor and uphold as many good ideas as possible. Now, obviously, as a Republican, the ideas that I have are different than those of the opposing party of of the Democrat Party. But that's not to say that there aren't areas where we don't agree or where we can't be convinced of the rightness of the other idea. Yeah, where was an example of that this session? 
the first bill that comes to mind was a bill coming out of the Judiciary Committee. Of which you're a member. So as it stands, when the federal government has custody over children who are here um, illegally, basically, who have an immigration status that is in question, they are put into a facility, into a child care facility. And there was some concern that these kids don't have someone looking out for their interests in these facilities, like other foster care kids would have um, in our system. And so this bill was put forth to say, we are going to give the state obundsman the authority to just check in on these kids. That was a bill that we got bipartisan support on. And we had a pretty robust conversation about it, actually Republican to Republican, in the well on second reading as we walk through, is this the role of government? Is this the proper role of state government? And, and there was a good conversation that we had around it. You live in Penrose, Colorado, between Pueblo and Canyon City. Uh, I know that Penrose celebrates its apple crop each October with Apple Day, clearly a celebration of agricultural and rural life. We know that rural Colorado has been especially hard hit by the high costs of health insurance and a lack of choice. Do you hope that the Colorado option can ease that in your own district? Well, of course, I would hope that that would be the case. But the industry experts that we spoke to while that bill was being debated, and even the folks in my own district that reached out to me, doctors and clinics, etc., they don't believe that that will actually be the case. Now, we'll just have to wait and see and, and you know, hope for the best, obviously, that we're not going to add to that burden. But based off of the information that we were given at the time, I, I don't believe that that will be the case. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is freshman Republican State Representative Stephanie Luck of Penrose in southern Colorado. We're talking about what it is to have been a freshman lawmaker coming to the state capitol in a pandemic, in the minority. The unemployment rate across your district is generally higher than the statewide average is that the biggest issue, do you think, facing your district overall? And, and if not, what is? Well, of course, the economy is a huge issue. And it's one of the reasons why I put forth one of the bills I put forth, which was to say that after the first 30 days of an emergency, a declared emergency, that the local counties could assert their own jurisdiction and make determinations based off of the needs of their own counties, because every county was different and was hit differently by COVID. There was minimal hit in in two of my counties um, vis-a-vis COVID for the health, but the economic toil that it took and the number of businesses that were impacted was very high. And so giving that local jurisdiction authority to determine what was in their best interest was very important to me so that they could ensure that their people did have access to continue to work and to continue to build their businesses. That measure failed. It did fail, yes. And do you feel comfortable giving those abilities, those powers to non-health people? In other words, uh, this is presumably about uh, empowering local commissioners, etc., who aren't necessarily public health experts, you know. Well, I don't know the fullness of Governor Polis's background, but I don't believe he has much of any experience in the health arena 
himself, and yet we give him as one person that authority. Now, he would look to CDPHE and other experts to inform his decisions in the same way that any good elected official would do, regardless of what level of government they serve at. According to the U.S. COVID map and vaccine tracker, in Fremont County, a little over a quarter of folks have received at least one dose of the shots. That's less than half the statewide rate. It's about the same in Otero County, higher in Pueblo County. What do you make of those rates? Well, I mean, I think everybody makes their own determinations as to their health, right, and to what is the right medical treatment for them. Um, so, But this is also a decision ask, that affects others, right? I mean, it's, it's beyond the individual. Well, every decision we make affects other people, but we still have the right to make individual decisions, and that is part of living in a free society. Do you wish the vaccination rate were higher in your district? Um, again, I think that we... I wish for people to make the best decisions for their health after having consulted with their medical professionals. And where that leaves them is, is if that is the best calculation, is where it should leave them. And if Colorado does not reach herd immunity as a result, that, that's a consequence that the society has to live with, then, you're saying? Well, how many of those individuals already have had COVID who haven't been vaccinated, right? How many of them have other, um, I mean, these are, these are questions that I would require more facts, but it's my understanding that, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's, yeah. In terms of an economic recovery from COVID, what do you, what do you think that looks like for your constituents? Oh, well, so as the former president of the Penrose Chamber of Commerce, I can tell you in rural Colorado, you know, you have you have a lot of entrepreneurs. You have a lot of individuals who come up with an idea and sell online or they'll sell um, at local f- markets or, or that sort of thing. And I think part of it will be to help each other. And again, this goes back to the role of government versus the role of building community that will be necessary to choose to purchase each other's products, even when that means um, it might be a little bit more costly. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, in Otero and Fremont County, we're seeing an increase of folks moving from the front range uh, because now they can telecommute. And so they want the quality of life of living in a rural community. And that will be interesting in terms of the local economy, the stores. What do you see as the path forward the path back to power for Republicans in Colorado? And and is it possible, given the demographics of the state? If you talk in terms of partisanship, so if you talk in terms of Republican and Democrat, people tend to see their passions flare. But if you talk in terms of values, if you talk in terms of priorities, if you talk in terms of these things that matter to me, right, I want to see education be solid for our kids. I want our kids to be successful. I want um, our, our communities to be safe. I, these, 
I, I want to live freely. I want to be able to choose where to go and when, or, or be able to speak freely, even if other people disagree with what I have to say. When we talk in those types of terms, I find that the people of Colorado are basically on the same page. And many of those ideas, many of those principles, many of those values are longstanding American values that the Republican Party upholds. And so for the Republican Party, uh, I would say that that they would find great affinity with people across the state. And um, so what's the disconnect then? Why, why aren't they in greater power? Do you think? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the ways in which we talk about government and the ways in which we talk about problems and the ways in which we talk about our principles. If we talk in terms of liberty, if we talk in terms of, of virtue and of wanting to live in a place where we don't worry about whether someone um, is going to harm us, or if they do harm us, whether the police will be there to respond, and if the police are there to respond, whether they'll be there in a helpful way or not. If we have those conversations in a way that people can understand where we're coming from, I believe that we would find greater favor. Our struggle, I believe, as a, as a party has been in articulating what we stand for and how we can move forward um, under those principles and those values. Representative, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Attorney and Republican State Representative Stephanie Luck of Penrose, her House District 47 in southern Colorado, includes portions of Pueblo, Fremont, and Otero counties. Earlier, she mentioned a bill she opposed dealing with credit scores. She couldn't recall the specifics of that bill when we recorded, so we circled back for those specifics. House Bill 1134, which awaits the governor's signature, specifically mentions rural Colorado, low-income households and communities of color. It's a pilot program that would help build people's credit through the reporting of rental payments in the absence of a mortgage track record. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Businesses are opening up. The state is opening up. And so is the art scene. Movie theaters, museum exhibits, music festivals, performers taking to stages across the state. After a year stuck at home, you might want a night or weekend out. I'm Colorado Public Radio's arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo. Stay up to date on the rejuvenated art scene. Listen to CPR News or come to CPR.org. Get ready for an entertaining summer. Bands are returning to the road this summer and making their way to one of the great live music venues, Red Rocks. The amphitheater's calendar is jam-packed with artists from around the country, plus some local favorites. Let's go outside. String Cheese Incident of Boulder formed nearly 30 years ago. They're one of the best-known jam bands around. The incident recently announced their 2021 tour schedule, which includes a three-night run at Red Rocks. Let's listen back to my 2018 interview with founding guitarist Bill Nershi. He explained how the band got its start in Colorado ski country. We met 
in Crested Butte as uh, just a, a group of ski bums looking to get through the winter. Huh. You know, let's put something together, make a little money. Maybe we can uh, even play for our ski passes. And uh, after we played a couple of times, we got uh, some really great responses from uh, folks in Crested Butte that we were playing music to. And I thought, I have some great connections in Telluride. I had lived in Telluride for about 15 years. I said, let's go back to Telluride and see how it goes over at some of the places I've been playing. And uh, we went and we played Telluride. And that uh, is a really enthusiastic music crowd there due to all the festivals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, we were really well received so uh, we kept the band going, kept the band going, and, and a couple of years later, uh, we were enthused enough to uh, decide to go for it and hit the road. You said that you originally played possibly for ski passes. Did you ever actually play for a ski pass? Oh, yeah. Okay. Anytime I could. <laughs> but uh, Mike and I had, had gotten together, Mike Kang, our mandolinist and uh, uh, violinist, had gotten together and played some opera ski shows. And uh, we were asked by another uh, musician in town if we wanted to go up and play a particularly long ski line that they had (laughs) on the mountain. They said, we need some entertainment. This one line at Paradise Lift, it just gets so long and people get so bummed out in that line. Just come up to the mountain and hang out and play your instruments in that ski line. I am so jealous of these people who early on got to see the string cheese incident perform for ski lines. <laughs> talk about talk about humble beginnings. What inspired you to pick up the guitar in the first place? It was a family thing. We uh I I'm one of six, the youngest of six. Wow. We always had guitars laying around and and music books, song books laying around. And uh, we would go up to the country in the summers and there was no TV. There wasn't much in the way of entertainment aside from hiking around in the mountains there. And and we would uh, get together quite often and, and pull out the music books and sing songs. I'm picturing one of those like 1960s family folk acts, you know, with <laughs> with a single release album that I'd find in the back of a record store these days. <laughs> but no, it's not quite that. Well, we all we all played, but I'm the only one that that was really inspired to uh, continue playing and try to make a living at it, just because I didn't want to get a a real job. <laughs> <laughs> With our crew there and take it all in. Share stories, lots of laughter, let the dogs run. Nothing like a camp out for some real good fun. Getting cozy by the So, Believe is the second record you've made with Jerry Harrison, who is the guitarist for Talking Heads. Right. We're, uh, everybody in the, in the band is uh, a big fan of the Talking Heads. We got to meet Jerry Harrison a couple of times and we hit it off with him, and he's helped us a great deal in just uh, bring our music to a focus. To a focus. What does that mean? 
Well, is it like know, a therapy session? Well, there's six people in the band and six different ideas of how how a song might turn out or what it's going to sound like. And you hear these things in your head. And sometimes it's nice to bounce ideas off a producer and have him kind of corral all the different ideas uh, uh, that the band members might have and focus them into one thought. I feel like we have to hear the String Cheese Incident's take on the classic Talking head song, This Must Be The Place. listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Bill Nershey of The String Cheese Incident. I know that you've answered this question a million times. There are online forums dedicated even to just getting the answer, but briefly, the story behind the name The String Cheese Incident. Is it true you hate the name? Uh, the name, uh, it, it, <laughs> well, in a word, yes. Okay. <laughs> And all I can say to asking what the name means uh-huh. is et tu, Ryan? Yeah. I'm so sorry. I know it's the laziest question, right, for an interviewer. It's like, why did you write this book? Uh, okay, well I'll I'll give you the number one uh false answer. I mean the number one answer to that question, which is uh as we lived in in Crested Butte, there is a restaurant called Donitas. Great Mexican restaurant there, and they serve really powerful margaritas. We went in there and maybe had too many margaritas, and we had friends sitting at a table not too far away, and a food fight ensued Mm. in that restaurant. (laughs) And we were, uh, if you know what, 86th means. To to throw away. To 86 is. To throw out. Get out and don't come back. And uh, we were 86 from that restaurant after the food fight, which later became known as the string cheese incident. It was not maybe string cheese. Maybe it was Jack cheese. Maybe we should be known as the Jack cheese incident. There's a vast library of your live shows online. You do, though, record albums in the studio. In fact, you have a new recording facility in Louisville. This is a song that features Bonnie Payne of Colorado band Elephant Revival. The track is My One and Only. Hear all their voices as they cry. The String Cheese Incident with Bonnie Payne. We have less than a minute, Bill. I'm curious how you find the energy to play for several hours each night. Uh, I guess I guess we uh, really feed off the energy of the crowd. 
and it gets the adrenaline going. And I think that's a big part of the reason we're all skiers and outdoors men of, you know, riding, skiing, et cetera. And we like that adrenaline buzz. And uh, that's one of the important things about playing music that we get out of it. And that keeps us going during the course of uh, a four and a half hour show. Guitarist Bill Nershey in 2018. The String Cheese Incident recently announced their 2021 tourist schedule, which includes five nights in Colorado next month. They'll be at Dillon Amphitheater July 13th and 14th, followed by a three-night run at Red Rocks July 16th through 18th. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that keeps us jamming. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.